Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, and I am thrilled to welcome everybody to a second season of Obscure. Uh, All of you who are joining me out there on Patreon, thank you so much. All of you who have not yet subscribed to Patreon, you can go to patreon.com backslash Michael Ian Black and get yourself hooked up because we're doing all kinds of cool shit. I don't know what... I started to say, it, it, the word shit started to come out, um, I don't know, Australian, and then did, it ended up being kind of uh, Valley Girl, circa 1983, but more like somebody trying to do a Valley Girl impersonation, like a 50-year-old man like me trying to do a Valley Girl impersonation. That's what it sounded like, so I apologize. And if you were to stop listening to this entire podcast because of that alone... I would totally understand. But on Patreon, there's all kinds of extra stuff. There's bonus episodes, there's book club, and then there's additional bonus content. And it's cheap. So I would encourage you to subscribe. But for those of you already there, welcome on what I expect to be a scintillating journey. Now, there may be some among you some new listeners, some curious about whether or not you should subscribe to this podcast. So I'm going to lay out exactly what this is and make the most compelling argument I possibly can as to why you should subscribe. And the way to subscribe is by going to patreon.com backslash Michael Ian Black. So the first question what is obscure? It is a podcast in which I read classic works of literature out loud and comment on them as I go. Well, Michael, you may be thinking to yourself, that sounds horrible. I know. I know. 
Believe me, I know. And when I started this podcast last season by reading the Thomas Hardy book, Jude the Obscure, I said right out of the gates, this is probably a terrible idea. And yet, week after week, as we got into the book, I feel like the podcast found its voice. I found my voice a little bit. And it, it ended up being a really, to me, and to many of the listeners who have now come back for a second season, a really fulfilling thing to do. Uh, first of all, because I'm fucking hilarious. I mean, let's just get, let's just put that on the table. I'm fucking hilarious. So I say funny things. Do you like funny things? Well, I say them. This is an example. Me saying something funny. Uh, Maybe you're thinking, but Michael, that, that wasn't funny. Give it a chance. The second reason is, there's a reason classic works are classic. Not because somebody just said it, Although that was my suspicion going into Jude the Obscure because I'm like, this is going to be terrible. But because as you read them, you're like, oh, the writing is amazing. The stories are amazing. And this shit is classic shit. I, I didn't realize. Like I read The Great Gatsby on my own a couple of years ago. I'd never read it. Guess what? It's fucking amazing. Jude the Obscure, amazing. Now, this season, we're doing Frankenstein. Do I think Frankenstein's going to be amazing? I don't know. I've never read it. Maybe. That's another part of the podcast. I've never read these books before that I'm going to be reading. And so I'm discovering them in real time as I go. It's what happened with Jude the Obscure. It's it's what's going to happen with Frankenstein. I've never read it. I've never had any desire to read it. It's just been sitting on my bookshelf along with Jude the Obscure and a bunch of other books that my wife has because she was a a literature major 30 years ago and won't get rid of the books because she thinks, I don't know, they make her look smarter or something. She's already plenty smart. She doesn't need the books. So I just have these books, just have these stupid books sitting on my bookshelf, decided to make a podcast about it. And now here we are in season two, about to launch into an exciting new adventure. Exciting might, I might be overstating the case a little bit when I say exciting. But no, you know what? It will be. I'm excited. I've got goosebumps. My adrenal glands are pumping. I'm tingly. I've also just done a little bit of cocaine. So here we are, the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library, getting ready to begin this journey. And I use the word journey purposefully because I think, because, because, you know, there's a lot going on with that word journey uh, in terms of the, uh, the show itself, in terms of the book and just the beginning of any book is a journey. And then additionally, yesterday, well, here, here's the backstory for what I'm going to tell you. My friend, Matt, who is one of these guys that does stuff, right? And so he's annoying. You know, like when I first met Matt, he was doing bowling and he wanted everybody to bowl. And then he was snowboarding. He wanted everybody to snowboard and rock climbing. He wanted everybody to rock. I ran a a half marathon with Matt because he was running. He wants everybody to join. So a couple weeks ago, he says, he says, have you watched the show alone? 
I said, nope, never heard of it. Apparently, it's in its sixth season. He said, check it out. I said, I don't want to know anything about it. Don't tell me the premise. Don't tell me anything. I'll just watch it. All right, so I start watching Alone. If you haven't seen it, it's a reality show. And I don't, as a rule, like reality shows. And had I known it was a reality show, I wouldn't have watched it. But I just turned it on. And what it is, the premise is they drop 10 uh, people, contestants, off in the middle of nowhere by themselves. So they're all separated. They all have their own little piece of land with nothing but uh, but like 10 items that they bring from home. And then basically whoever lasts the longest wins. Season six took place in the Arctic. So they drop off these people in the Arctic and then they basically just watch them starve to death for X amount of days until until the last person drops out. So I found myself utterly compelled by this, watching these people build shelters, watching these people hunt and fish. One guy killed a fucking moose with one arrow, a moose with an arrow. These are survivalists. These are people who know what they're doing out there. And I'm watching this episode one, thinking these people are crazy. Episode two, these people are insane. Episode three, by episode five, I'm like, I want to do that. And if you know anything about me, you know I don't I don't do that. I don't go out. I barely leave the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. Why would you? Well, here's the exceptions. I do go hiking every couple of days with my dogs, including my stupid little shithead dog, Squash, who is in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library with me right now, sniffing around the floor like he's going to find something. What are you even looking for? You remember Jack-Jack from last season, and it's not like I'm replacing dogs every season. Jack-Jack died towards the end of last season, unexpectedly, tragically. So when that happened, I said, well, you know, we're obviously we're not getting another dog. So I have Squash here, who's my other dog, and I walk with him and I walk with Oli, our lab, and it's like a mile and a half loop up and down in the woods. Terrific. No problem. That's the extent of my natural engagement, or rather my engagement with nature. But I'm watching this thing, and part of me is going, I want to do that. Not go to the Arctic. I mean, although that sounds great, but just, I I want to do that. I want to be out in the woods. I want to be out in nature. So I say to Matt, I'm loving this show. And I say, uh, I'm not sure who said it. I said, I think, I I guess it's like, hey, it seems like funny to to go camping. And he's like, yeah, bro, I got a a tent. You should get a tent. We'll go camping. I'm like, I'm going to get a fucking tent. I'm going to go camping. Yesterday, I spent the whole day researching tents. And I bought a tent and it's going to come soon. And I'm going to, Matt and I have a camping trip planned for next month. I'm recording this at the end of August, 2020. We're going to go sometime in October. So that narrative will continue through this journey. So that's a journey I'm going to be going on, a literal journey. But then I'm also hoping it begins a kind of longer journey for me because for years, and this might surprise people who don't, who know me even, I have, for years, I have been dreaming about hiking the Appalachian Trail. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean it literally. And I don't know why I got this bug in my butt about hiking the Appalachian Trail, but it's something I've always wanted to do. And so this tent, which I spent a day researching, is kind of like the first step. It's the first commitment towards eventually doing something like that. I'm trying to take baby steps and build up to something like that. But in my heart of hearts, I would love to do that, at least a section of it, maybe starting in the spring of 2021. Will that happen? I don't know. That's part of this journey. 
There's also, along this journey and thematically speaking, the idea of nature itself and our relationship to it. Why do you say that, Michael? I will tell you, listeners. Because in this moment in time that we are in, recording again at the end of August 2020, we are in the midst of a natural disaster. And our relationship, at least my relationship with nature, has changed somewhat in that I'm forced to deal with it, right? There's a virus going around and I'm forced to accommodate, as we all are, this uh, plague, this impactful moment in natural history. My understanding of Frankenstein, and I know nothing about it really other than what's in pop culture already. My biggest frame of reference for Frankenstein is Boris Karloff with his arms out. I don't even know if it's Bar- Boris Karloff going. Ugh. Uh, uh. No, you're hurting me. No. And Herman Munster. Like th- those are my two cultural touch points for. Frankenstein. And I know I'm, and and I know it's not Frankenstein. I know it's the creature. I had a joke in my act about that for years. I'll tell you the joke because you probably don't know my act. I mean, it was a while ago. It was it was an old act. It was talking about Halloween costumes and I was saying and, and my son came and when he was a kid, my son came down for Halloween and he's wearing green face paint and his arms are out and he's got a scar written right across his head and I looked at him and I said, "What are you supposed to be?" And he says, "I'm Frankenstein." I said, "No, you're not." You're the creature. Frankenstein is the doctor who created the creature. Go upstairs and change. That was the joke. Big laugh. Um, So I don't know much about Frankenstein, but here's what I'm surmising based on my limited cultural knowledge. That in many ways, it is about this exact thing. Our relationship with nature and the natural world. How much does man control nature? How much does nature control man? I'm I'm assuming that's one of the questions as we go on this journey. And again, I envision this being a journey that begins with a single step, as they say. So that's where we begin today on season two of Obscure. I'm holding in my hand the Penguin Classics edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, I don't know what it's going to be about. Neither does my stupid little bat dog squash who's sitting beside me. I mean, you remember Jack-Jack from last season who died. And he was a shitty little rat dog. Well, squash is of similar shape uh, and and temperament as Jack-Jack, but so dumb. Jack-Jack was an idiot, like a legitimate idiot, right? Squash is half as smart as Jack-Jack. Sweet kid, don't get me wrong, real sweet kid. He's not even a year old. He has recently stopped peeing and pooping in the house for the most part, still chewing on stuff and has bat-like ears that give him a bat-like appearance. And just dumb. Just so dumb. Right, Squash? He's got his, he's curled up beside me right here on the Jack-Jack couch of remembrance. I'm retitling 
what I call it, the Jack-Jack couch of remembrance. And he's just sitting beside me, very contentedly sleeping. So I hold in my hand the Penguin Classics edition of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. I keep saying Frankenstein, I think because of Mel Brooks. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering whether I should read the introductory remarks or not, uh, or whether I should just dive into the book because part of the premise is I don't know anything about this and I don't want to, I don't want to have my opinion, uh, uh, shaded one way or the other. I think I'm not going to read any of the introductory remarks. Um, here's the other thing that I think I know about Mary Shelley. I believe that this is correct, that she was 17 when she wrote uh, or, or some ridiculously young age, and 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 that the project emerged from like a from like a writing prompt or something, or like they were bored, like she and these two people that she she was with were bored, and they were like, oh, maybe we should write something. So she writes Frankenstein. I mean, what the hell, right? She'd be on Snapchat now, and Frankenstein wouldn't have been written, but we would have had some selfies. First published in eighteen eighteen. So this is. Uh, 80 years older, approximately, than season one, uh, Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure. So this book comes 80, almost a century before Jude the Obscure. So it'll be interesting to see how the language is different. It'll be interesting to see how the era is different. Um, It'll just be interesting to see in general. So there's a whole thing here. There's a chronology... There's uh, Mary Shelley's life up to the writing of Frankenstein in the introduction. Because Frankenstein is not a very long book, but the book that I have, the Penguin Classics, is fairly big. I think they were trying to get a little more material in here. Uh, Then there's further reading, if you want to read more. This is before the book even starts. And then there's a note on the text. Oh, interesting. Damn it, I read something that I didn't want to read. I, maybe I should read the introductory remarks. I don't know. But, but this is what I accidentally read. The first edition of Frankenstein, Frankenstein was published anonymously in 1818 by the London printers Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Maver, and Jones, and was in three volumes. Huh. And a two-volume second edition was published in 1823, this time bearing Mary Shelley's name. Interesting. All right. I, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to skip it. Maybe we'll go back. I'm going to skip it. I want to go in with fresh eyes. All right. Here we are. And I should note that the text uh, is on the cover page here seems to be uh, an actual replica of the original font style because it it has a real old-timey look. Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus in three volumes... And now let's take a little break. We begin. We're taking our first step. I've cracked the book open. I'm on the title page. Now, Prometheus, I believe, is the bringer of fire, which in a sense is the bringer of life, right? Is that who Prometheus was? Should I look that up? I'm just going to double check. I'm going to double check because I don't want to go into this getting the very first thing wrong. 
who was Prometheus. Uh, I'm pretty sure. He's a cultural hero trickster figure credited with the creation of humanity from clay and who defies the gods by, I think, bringing fire, stealing fire, giving it to humanity. Okay, so he, uh, the modern Prometheus, he, he is the, he's the creator of humanity. No, so what we know about uh, Dr. Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Stein, is that he, you know, he, he makes this creature. In my, in my mind, what he's doing is he's like going up to, to graveyards and digging up corpses and sewing them together like um, the guy in the Silence of the Lambs, Wild Bill or whatever his name is, Buffalo Bill. And, and, you know, but he's doing it the whole body, not just the human skin, right? And then he's pumping it full of electricity. The thing comes alive. Not sure how that's supposed to work, but it seems plausible enough, right? My understanding is that Frankenstein is also considered one of the first science fiction novels, which makes sense. It's a horror story. It's a science fiction novel. It's a fantasy story in a certain respect. I mean, it's all kinds of things. That's what I think anyway. So then there's a quote from Paradise Lost. It says, did I request the maker from my clay to mold me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? So it's, it's humanity saying, did I ask to be made? It's like my daughter. I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask to be born. Did I ask for this? No. So don't give me your bullshit. And in fact, that's the next line here in Paradise Lost. Don't give me your bullshit. That's usually left off the, uh, the additions that I've seen. But yeah, it says, did I request the maker from my clay to mold me, man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Don't give me your bullshit. Hm. All right. Volume one, London. Uh, and this is just the title page. It, it, it's just telling you where it was printed. Printed for Lackington Hughes, Harding, Maver and Jones, Finsbury Square, 1818. And I'm going to try to resist doing British accents because I'm so bad at it. To William Godwin, author of Political Justice, Caleb Williams and Company. These volumes are respectfully inscribed by the author. Interesting. Now, isn't there a modern William Godwin who coined Godwin's law, which is that the first person who invokes Hitler in an argument loses? I believe his name was William Godwin. I don't think it's the same William Godwin because uh, Hitler had not yet been born in 1818. So it's probably not the same William Godwin, but there is something interesting. There's an interesting parallel between our modern Godwin and the association of Nazis with what I understand to be, and again, I have no idea, the premise of this book, nature, man's relationship to nature, and man's dominion over nature. Because, of course, what was what were the Nazis doing? I mean, it was about eugenics. It was, in a sense, about doing exactly what our beloved doctor is about to do, which is create, to mold man, as Milton just described, uh, to whatever image he sees fit. So they're all doing it. Everybody's doing it. Frankenstein, Nazis, everybody's doing it. Elon Musk is doing it now with he's got chip implants in the brain or something that are supposed to help make paralyzed people walk. But I, I, I suspect implants in the brain, I suspect that's technology that could maybe go bad. Hard to say, but I feel like once you start implanting chips into people's brains, that could start to go bad real quick. I don't know. 
All right. Whew. I'm already out of breath. My gosh. You know, I feel like I've done so much. I'm out, I'm out of shape. I got to get in shape for reading. I got to get in shape for hiking. Gosh. Uh, here's the author's introduction to the standard novels edition from 1831. So 15 years after the fact. Again, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to skip it. Here's the preface by P.B. Shelley, 1818. Because this is from 1818, I'm going to read it because I feel like this preface probably came out with the book. All right, so here's the preface. The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. Really? So the very first sentence is they're saying, yeah, this is speculative fiction. This is science fiction, but this could happen, right? We could dig up some corpses, uh, sew them together and, and make somebody. Why not? I like that. It continues, I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination, yet in assuming it has the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of specters or enchantment. Okay, fine. So she's saying, yeah, I don't think this could happen. But it's not totally just like gobbledygook either. Somewhere in between. Science fiction. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops, and however impossible as a physical fact, affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. I did not understand that sentence. Because I was thinking about Darwin. I started reading and then I was thinking about, oh, did she mean Charles? Does she mean Charles Darwin? Dr. Darwin is saying like this shit could happen? Doubt it. All right. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops. So she had this idea and then the novelty of the situations which it develops. It, 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 okay. And however impossible as a physical fact affords a point of view to the imagination Okay, so I'm basically like I'm thinking about this. For the delineating of human passions, more comprehensive and commanding than any which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield. So she's saying, uh, I think she's saying, this can't happen. But if you, if you take the premise, you can understand and you can have a kind of point of view of how... Uh, nutso, this can make people. I think that's what she's saying, right? How passionate and and involved, and and if we if we let this kind of unspool in our imaginations the way I have, then I think this is a plausible way it would unfold. I think that's what she's saying. I have thus, and incidentally, the finalists for this. It's not incidentally. It's it's in fact it's uh, it's not incidental at all. The finalists for this season of Obscure were Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, and. Frankenstein, Stein. And it is not a coincidence that the three finalists were all written by women. Why isn't it a coincidence? Because I rigged it. Because it was important to me that the that we do a female author this season. Because it just seemed like, well, let's get a female perspective on things. If we're going to read 19th century literature, then we did a dude. 
let's do a lady and see if we can discern any differences in point of view and what they talk about and how they talk about it. And, you know, a sample size of one isn't a lot, but it's something. So female, Mary Shelley. Uh, I have thus endeavored to preserve the truth of the elementary principles of human nature, while I have not scrupled to innovate upon their combinations. The Iliad, the tragic poetry of Greece, Shakespeare in The Tempest and Midsummer Night's Dream, and most especially Milton in Paradise Lost, conform to this rule. And the most humble novelist who seeks to confer or receive amusement from his labors, interesting, she refers to herself as he, from his labors may without presumption apply to prose fictions a license, or rather a rule, from the adoption of which so many exquisite combinations of human feeling have resulted in the highest specimens of poetry. So I think what she's saying is, you know, she's doing a little... It's a little weird what she's doing here. She's saying, look, this is a crazy idea, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show human nature, all right? And, there, and already we got that word nature, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a dick about this. Nature, 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 because I think that's what this is about. Um, and she's, not, she's saying, I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not reinventing the wheel here, you know? Uh, and then she compares herself to the greatest works of literature in Western civilization. And she's saying, but I'm just, a, I'm just a humble novelist. I'm just a little scribbler of stories, right? But by the way, I'm comparing myself to Shakespeare and Milton and the Iliad. It's a little much. For my taste, it's a little much. But let's just assume, you know what, Mary Shelley? You're a teenager, I think, and we're going we're gonna to let you have this. Because teenagers, you know, they can be a little overwrought. The circumstances on which my story rests was suggested in casual conversation. I think that's, see, that that backs up what I was saying, that I think it was like literally like a writing prompt at like a party. They were just hanging out. It was commenced partly as a source of amusement and partly as an expedient for exercising any untried resources of mind. Other motives were mingled with these as the work proceeded. I am by no means indifferent to the manner in which whatever moral tendencies exist in the sentiments or characters it contains shall affect the reader. Yet my chief concern in this respect has been limited to the avoiding the enervating effects of the novels of the present day. Oh, so, okay, let me think about that for a second. She's saying... My chief concern in this respect has been limited to the avoiding the enervating effects of the novels of the present day. Uh, so why doesn't she want to enervate the reader? Is she saying like other readers are, I mean, other books are kind of trashy and pulpy and, you know, and, and sentimental and blah, blah. And she's just trying to be like, just the facts, ma'am. She's trying to like strip it away and just make it like a story. And you can, you can draw whatever moral conclusions you want from it. I think that's what she's saying. Okay. I gotta go. I lost my place. And, and to, so the, the enervating effects of the novels of the present day, and to the exhibition of the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. All right. I mean, I did not suspect that this book would be about the amiableness of domestic affection and the excellence of universal virtue. In fact, I thought it was the opposite, but let's see. All right. Our, our first surprise already. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for surprises, and, I'm, and we just got one. 
The opinions which naturally spring from the character and situation of the hero are by no means to be conceived as existing always in my own conviction, nor is any inference justly to be drawn from the following pages as prejudicing any philosophical doctrine of whatever kind. She's saying, guys, it's just a story, okay? It's just a story I told. It was this crazy idea. I wrote it out. Here it is. Don't, don't judge me. Don't judge me, yo. I'm just a I'm just a humble novelist. I'm just a scribbler of words, not so different from the greatest writers of all time. It is a subject also of additional interest to the author that this story was begun in the majestic region where the scene is principally laid, and in society which cannot cease to be regretted. Oh, why? Why cannot it cease to be regretted? I guess we'll find out. I passed the summer of 1816 in the environs of Geneva. The season was cold and rainy, and in the evenings we crowded around a blazing wood fire and occasionally amused ourselves with some German stories of ghosts, which happened to fall into our hands. These tales excited in us a playful desire of imitation. So so it starts as fanfic, right? It starts as... Um, Twilight started. Was it Twilight or what, one of them was an imitation of the other? Was it the the? Oh, it was the um, the erotic ones. What are they called? Gray and uh, uh, something. Uh, you know, I'm I'm sipping a little water here. My I'm parched. Um, you know, the ones I'm talking about, uh, the sexy ones. Those were tw- those were Twilight fanfic. So this th- this is ghost fanfic. Uh, this is like oh oh we should write we should write a ghost story. Two other friends, a tale from the pen of one whom would be far more acceptable to the public than anything I can ever hope to produce, and myself agreed to write each a story founded on some supernatural occurrence. The weather, however, suddenly became serene, and my two friends left me on a journey among the Alps and lost in the magnificent scenes which they present all memory of their ghostly visions. The following tale is the only one which has been completed. Marlowe, it's signed, September 1817. And I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop after those introductory remarks. We will begin reading volume one the next time out. But I feel like Shelley has really sort of set the table for us. And it is as I thought. She was with friends. They were hanging out in Geneva. The weather was shitty. They were like, we're bored. Here's this book of ghost stories. Let's read some. We don't have Snapchat. They read the stories. They were like, hey, I've got an idea. Why don't we each write our own ghost story? And uh, one of the writers she's saying is a better writer than her. The other one she seems to think is a shitty writer. She doesn't say, but it's implied. You know, the other writer is just like garbage. She doesn't say it, but I think we understand, right? Mary and the other friend are like, we're the writers here. And the other friend is like, hey, Shakespeare, why don't you write us a ghost story? So they're like, yeah, okay. So they all started writing, but then the weather cleared. The other friends went off to uh, to hike the Alps. They were lost forever. Paradise lost indeed. But Mary stayed behind for whatever reason and completed the book that I hold in my hands, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So here we are. We've taken our first step, everybody. We have begun this journey. We have set foot 
like Mary Shelley's friends, into nature, the nature of our own selves as we contemplate, as she says, what promises to be a supernatural occurrence. So if there's one thing I like better than nature, it's super nature. All right. I mean, I'm thrilled. I'm looking forward to this. I got goosebumps. Uh, uh, Squash has settled down. It looks like he's attentive. And we are going to start volume one of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein on the next episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself. It is generally recorded in the wilds of Connecticut with original music by Craig Wedrin. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. There you will find every single episode of Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein. These episodes are released weeks before they are released to the general public. In addition, you can also find writings, musings, erotica, and bonus episodes. Bonus episodes which sometimes involve Frankenstein and sometimes involve things entirely different, often with guest stars. It's patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Very reasonably priced, too, I might add. 